Hey, everybody. So good to be with uh, all of you here in the worship center, all of you online, everybody that is in the chapel. Um, there's a guy by the name of Dr. John Perkins, and some of you may be familiar with him. Dr. Uh, Perkins is a minister, 89 years old. He was an icon and icon of the civil rights movement. Uh, he has faithfully confronted prejudice and inequality and oppression and violence, all the while advocating for peace, reconciliation, equality, healing, and hope. As a black man in the civil rights movement, he endured beatings, he endured imprisonments, and he endured all kinds of death threats. Would you agree with me that Dr. Perkins knows a little bit about hate? He's been on the receiving end of a lot of hate, and one of the things that he said in a recent meeting of leaders in Nashville is, this generation is the first generation to make hate an asset. Isn't that terrible? Rather than hate being a deficit, it is for many people an asset. And over the past number of years, uh, there are some words that I would choose to describe what has gone on in our world. I, I, I could choose the word polarized, racialized, tribalized, politicized. But there's one word I would not choose to describe the past several years in the life of this country, and it would be the word civilized. Would you agree? I mean, the tone and the tenor of the spirit of the age is anything but civil. How shall we live in times like this? How do we live in an age where asset, an asset is hate? How do we live in a age where it seems to be more about what we are against than who we are for. So we're in a series, for those of you who are with us for the very first time, called How Shall We Now Live? We're basically asking the same question that the Jewish people who found themselves in exile in Babylon were asking in those days, how do we live as if we are, you know, not in the place that we want to be because we're not there. How do we live in a situation that is in many ways foreign to us? How do we live in a place where it seems like everything is against everything that we have known and everything that we believe? And so what I want to talk about today is how to practice civility. And let me just give this little application this actually will work in our family dynamics as well. So what I'm talking about might be on the broader scope, but it's certainly everything that we're going to look at today has everything to do with our family life as well. Now, you would be right if you said, Merle, the word civility is not in the Bible. Why are you talking about it? Well, there are a lot of words that aren't in the Bible that are true, like you're not going to find the word trinity in the Bible, but the, the Christian faith affirms that there is one God who has expressed himself in three equal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We call that the doctrine of the Trinity. The word civility is not in the Bible, but the concept of living civil certainly is. If you were looking for a definition that is most common on civility, it would be like being courteous and being polite. The word civil comes from a Latin term civilis, which had everything to do with describing behavior that befitted a good citizen of a city or a country, somebody who acted orderly and properly. There's a 
a Christian professor by the name of Stephen Carter. He's professor of, uh, of law at Yale University. He wrote a really groundbreaking book called Civility, Manners, Morals, and the Etiquette of Democracy. He made this statement, which is going to be for us a jumping off point as we look at Scripture. He says, civility represents the sum of all the sacrifices that one makes in a democracy for the sake of living a common life. Civility is the sum of all sacrifices. Have you ever thought about that? I had never thought about civility having any kind of sacrificial element to it at all until I read that particular statement. So we're going to talk about what it is that followers of Jesus, in order to really demonstrate that we know Jesus and we are committed to following him in an age where hate is an asset, we're going to talk about what it is that we have to be willing to give up. But before we do that, let me talk about what you don't have to give up. If you are practicing civility, it doesn't mean that you have to give up as a follower of Jesus your biblical beliefs and your Christian convictions. You don't have to give those up. But there's an all too common narrative these days that believes that people with deeply held religious beliefs are the key drivers of incivility in this nation. That's one of the beliefs that's out there. But there was this massive research project that was done by the Ethics and Religious Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, Lifeway Research, and the Fetzer Institute. And what they did is they came up with a civility index in which people were able to determine their ability to find common ground with people who had different beliefs or different values than them. And what was absolutely fascinating about this particular research was this. Evangelicals like us who believe in the centrality and exclusivity of Jesus Christ as being the only pathway to God, People like us who believe deeply in religious liberty, people like us who believe that every human being is created in the image of God, therefore has inherent and equal dignity, we score high on civility scores. We score high on the civility index. And so maybe what we could deduce is this, perhaps the nastiness in our civic discourse is not because Christians hold too deeply and too tightly to our core beliefs and our core convictions, but it's because we as followers of Jesus have strayed from our core convictions and biblical doctrines. In other words, if it is not our belief system that is the problem, it's that we stray from what we believe that causes individuals to wonder who it is that we are. So, for instance, if a Christian really believes that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can go to God except through him, we therefore are compelled to follow him into the world, loving our neighbors and caring for the people that Jesus came to redeem, even those who disagree with us, who have a different point a view that might be diametrically opposed to us. And if we genuinely believe that the Bible is true, when the Bible says every human being has dignity because they are created by God, we are compelled to treat those 
even those who most strongly and loudly disagree with us as God image bearers because they are. Somebody has said that maybe what is producing incivility in people like us who claim to be followers of Jesus is not our Christian doctrine, but an unholy fear of people who believe differently than we do, and a failure to trust God's sovereignty over world events. Now, that's pretty arresting to think about, that it isn't that we have this great trust in God and we're simply defending our faith. It's like we don't know that we can trust God with the events of the world and we don't know whether God really is in charge and therefore we need to act for some reason within civility. Now, before we look at what we give up, let me just go a little bit further because some folks struggle. Being civil doesn't mean you can't critique what goes on around you. It doesn't mean that you have to approve what other people believe and what other people do. It's one thing to insist that all people have the right to express their basic convictions. It's another thing to say that they are right in doing so. To say that all beliefs and values deserve to be treated as if they are on par is to endorse relativism. And relativism is a perspective that's incompatible with the Christian faith and practice. Christian civility does not mean refusing to make assessments and judgments about what is a truth claim and what somebody says is good. All that being said, if civility is about sacrifice, not sacrificing Christian doctrine, not sacrificing core convictions. If it's not about giving that up, what is it that Christians are to give up in order to counteract incivility? Now, to help us answer the question, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that Paul wrote to some Christians who lived in the city of Ephesus. And it was probably a, a letter that was circulated to other churches in the Asia Minor area. But Paul wrote this letter, and on two occasions in this letter, in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, Paul gives special emphasis to unity. And the unity that he's talking about is unity that is to exist in the body of Christ. How could we ever hope to see unity happen outside of the church if we are not treating each other civilly inside the church in pursuing unity. So Paul talks about that. Paul says he's longing for the day when Jews and Gentiles, people with different backgrounds, different races, different histories, different expressions, different culture, God brought us all together as one in Jesus Christ, and he is painting the picture of the day that that's going to happen, and he's longing for it to happen in our midst. And when you get to the fourth chapter, after he has spent so much time talking about all the things that Jesus Christ has done for us and all that we have as followers of Jesus, he gets real practical in the fourth chapter, and he gives a lot of admonition, a lot of exhortation, a lot of directives on how we are to live in order that unity 
might be seen and experienced in our midst. All that being said, what is it that we are going to give up? Practicing civility means as a follower of Jesus, I will give up pride. Amen? I will give up pride. Roger Miller wrote a song. He says, pride is the chief cause in the decline of the number of husbands and wives. You could also say that pride is the chief cause in the decline of civility among people in the church and people outside the church. Paul writes this, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Therefore, based on everything that he said about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, he was in prison when he wrote this, urge you, speaking to believers, Walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When Paul says, I want you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, he's saying something like this. If God's love is so great, he talked about this earlier. If his salvation is so powerful, he wrote about this earlier. If God has granted us such reconciliation, then live accordingly. That's what he's saying. We are to value God's love enough to be shaped by it in terms of our relationships with one another. And we are to do it with, he says, with all humility, with all humility. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less and thinking about others more. So let's talk about what pride is, which is the opposite of humility that we are to give up. What does pride sound like? Let me give you one illustration. There, the late Samuel Goldwyn, who is an American filmmaker and producer, famously said this. See if you've ever thought this before. I'm willing to admit that I may not always be right, but I am never wrong. <laughs> pride is a spirit that says, I'm never wrong. Pride is not gentle. It's demanding. Pride has to win arguments more than it has to or desires to win in relationships. Pride has to have the last word rather than wanting to hear what others have to say. Pride leads to disrespect. A person can be wrong or differ from you and me on a particular issue, but that doesn't mean the person is less of a human being. And what happens in our particular day and age is that disrespect demonizes people who differ from us. And if you can demonize a person who is different from you, you can treat them less than a human. Pride is at the core of humanity's fall away from God. Pride builds walls between people, and we need to give up pride in order to practice civility. The second thing we need to give up is impatience. Give up impatience. He again says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians 4, 2. With patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, would you agree with me that our society continues to pick up speed? That it's like we keep going faster and faster. In case you don't agree with me, let me give you some scientific research. 
The speed of human movement from the pre-modern times to now has increased by a factor of 100. For instance, the speed of communications has skyrocketed by a factor of 10 million. The speed of data transmission has soared by a factor of around 10 billion. Not only that, our walking speed has increased 10% since the 1990s. We're actually walking faster. And as society picks up speed, it breeds stress. And in our stress, when our stress increases, patience decreases, right? I get really frustrated when I go to a fast food restaurant like Chick-fil-A. And there are two lines, and I have to wait five minutes to get my chicken sandwich. Why? Because we have been conditioned to want speed. And how does that impact us? We become impatient people. We become impatient with people who don't think like us. We become impatient with people who don't respond fast enough to a statement that we make to them. And our impatience can be seen on our face. It can be seen in our eyes. It can be heard in our size. It can be heard in the tapping of our finger, the wanting people to hurry up. And as I thought about my own impatience, it dawned on me that I have never been persuaded by anybody in my life to do anything or believe anything when they were impatient with me. Never. Have you? You ever been convinced by impatience? You ever been convinced about an argument? Have you ever been convinced to think about something differently when people are simply just very impatient with you? No. I can tell that when I am impatient, something happens to my ability to listen. This is what happens when I'm impatient. I will give glib answers to important questions or I will say hurtful things. Patience, though, says, I'm going to seek to understand you before I try to make myself understood. Now, for those of you who like the meaning of words, the, the word patience carries with it the, the idea, according to John Christosom, to have a wide and big soul to have a wide and big soul. Patience with other people is to exercise a largeness of soul because you've experienced the largeness of God's grace in your life, and so you just simply want to, to imitate God. The gospel says this. It creates in me a spirit that says, I'm a sinner, but I am loved by God. As a result of knowing that I am a sinner that is loved by God, it breeds a certain kind of graciousness and patience with me in the way I talk to and the way I relate to people who disagree with me, who hold a different point of view. Give up pride. Give up impatience. Give up destructive words. Give up destructive words. Now, it's nothing new. Human beings haven't just 
master the idea of being incredibly rude in this day and age, but it does seem like there is a greater proliferation of verbal pollution. Do you agree? Whether it is spoken or whether it is written, it is like, you know, the scientists talk about the greenhouse effect. I think we suffer from the running mouth effect. That we, we just, uh, the words that come without any filter, we say them or we type them or we express them without giving thought to the destructive nature that some of our words can have. It has become fashionable, has it not, to use sound bites, misleading innuendos, innuendos and half-truths in order to get people to believe things that aren't true about other people? Come on now. How many of us have actually done that? We've, we have attributed to somebody an opinion that they don't really have, but we think they might have without ever asking them. And that doesn't help us to treat one another with, with respect and civility. One of the foundational principles of civility is that we speak truthfully to each other and about each other. Paul put it this way. Look at verse 25. Therefore, and who's Paul talking to? Who's he talking to? He's talking to us. He's talking to followers of Jesus. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this isn't put upon you. This is what is expected of those of us who have received the gospel of grace. We don't do this in order to win God's favor. We've already won God's favor, so this is who we become. This is how we live. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are all members of one another. And then if you look at verse 29, no foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for the building up of someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. Paul says, be done with foul language. Instead, choose language that, that builds up. So think about it like this. Our words, whether spoken or written, can build walls of hostility where we say, you stay on your side. Or they can build wall, uh, bridges of unity. Walls of hostility or a bridge of unity. And what's a bridge designed to do? It's designed to help us get to one another, to cross over our differences. In the world of politics, one of the most effective means of political speech is called the attack ad. Don't you love them? Don't they just make your heart warm? Don't they make you really wish that you could run for public office? You know what attack ads often do? They often use labels to put down the opponent. But that isn't just limited to politics, is it? How often have we used labels, and do you know what labels do? Labels limit. Labels limit understanding. Labels limit meaningful communication. Labels paint you into a box. And if I can label you, then I have power 
over you because the label I'm going to use is probably not going to be a positive label, especially if you believe something that I don't believe. But instead of using language like that, Solomon in his wisdom says this, a gentle answer turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. A gentle answer turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. So this is an a interesting thing to consider. And if you've done this, I'd like to hear how this worked because I've never done this before. Have you ever had an argument in a whisper? And maybe you've tried to do that around children or maybe you've been in a public place. You know, and anybody who's looking at you goes, man, those folks are having a doozy right there, aren't they? Karen and I have never had an argument in our life with a whisper. <laughs> we never have done that with a whisper. Typically, when we get into one of those moments when we are very sinful, one of us more sinful than the other. And so, typically, the language that happens is heated, and it is elevated in raised voices. It's virtually impossible to have an argument with a whisper, and it's almost equally hard to argue with someone who insists on providing a gentle answer, one that's respectful, one who does not match the level of anger that might be coming from one person to the next. Believe it or not, since I've been a pastor, I have received a few emails in my life about things that people didn't like or disagree with me on things. And so I receive those. They become opportunities to have a conversation. And I remember receiving one at one point in time that uh, labeled me pretty well, was not true, uh, leveraged some half-truths. A half-truth is called what? A lie. Used a half-truth and attributed to me uh, feelings and motivations that are so vastly different from who I am, really. And again, I'm a sinner. I'm not saying that, that I am perfect by any means, but on this particular situation, uh, and do you know what I did at first? I began to compose an email with the same amount of, and you'd been proud of my language. No foul language, but I did use all the things that were not gentle and were harsh, and I didn't send it. I sat on it for 24 hours, and then I was able to respond to the email in a understanding kind of way. And again, I'm not, saying, I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm perfect. This required a lot of Holy Spirit help. But when I did respond to it and I asked for an opportunity to speak in person, rather than us having this email thing, uh, the person responded, uh, you have certainly demonstrated Proverbs 15.1. You could have been very angry in your response, but you responded in gentleness, and 
that means a lot to me. And we were able to have a face-to-face conversation about the issue that this person was struggling with, and I was able to clarify some things. A gentle answer, a gentle response to people that differ from us is the better approach. Proverbs 15.4 says, A tongue that heals is a tree of life, but a devious tongue breaks the spirit. A gentle answer is not a wimpy answer. A gentle answer is a life-giving answer. A gentle answer assumes humility and respect and patience and understanding. I really don't think that uh, people who are not followers of Jesus are looking for Christians to be a sanctified version of Bill Maher, who is this guy who can be very acidic with his language. People aren't looking for us to match rage with rage, put down with put down, labeling with labeling. I think that people would be more apt to listen to us when there is a difference of belief, a difference of opinion, a different take on things if we have a gentle, life-giving response. One lady put it like this. We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. This is, this is about being winsome. This is about being civil in how we respond. So we give up We give up destructive words. We give up impatience. We give up pride. And finally, we give up unrestrained anger. We give up unrestrained anger. Proverbs, I mean, Ephesians 4, 26, 27, and 31. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. Give up unrestrained anger. Being civil means we do away with letting anger get the best of us and get out of control. Notice that Paul says, be angry and do not sin. The implication is there is a sinful anger and there is a non-sinful anger. Anger at injustice is not sinful. Anger at unrighteousness is permitted. Anger at inhumane treatment is right. Godly anger confronts wrong, but it does it with truth and with grace. Anger is sinful. When anger is destructive, when anger is vengeful, when it holds a grudge rather than seeking reconciliation, that's when anger is sinful. If we want to be taken seriously in the world based upon our desire to be a witness for Jesus Christ, if we want to be salt and light that brings light on a subject that brings flavor to the world's beliefs, something that is more flavorful, we have to make some commitments. So let me just draw this all to a close and and say this. With God's help, this is the commitment that we can make. I will remain true to my beliefs and convictions 
I will genuinely love, listen to, and serve those who do not share my beliefs and convictions, and I will consistently do both at the same time. That's what it's like to live with civility. Earlier, we said, Stephen Carter said, civility represents the sum of all sacrifices one makes in a democracy in order to for the sake of living a common life. We ought to know about sacrifice, right? As followers of Jesus, sacrifice is at the core of our faith. There is a greater sacrifice that was made that has broken down the walls between us and God and built a bridge between God and us and between us and other people. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is the peacemaker. He's the peace giver. He's the one who breaks down the walls between people. He's the one that breaks down the wall that exists between us and God. You see, there is a wall that has been built by this universal problem that we can't solve called sin. Sin has built a wall between us and God. Sin has made a gap between us and God. Our failure to live up to God's moral law in action and attitude is what causes us to be separated from God. It's what has erected a wall between us and God. The only bridge over the chasm of our sin is the sacrificial death and the miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's your bridge. He is your wall breaker. The question is, do you know him? Are you still separated from God thinking that if you're just good enough that somehow you'll be able to span the gap? And the truth is you can't. Nobody can be that perfect. God knows that. That's the reason he sent the perfect one, Jesus Christ. You can't break down the wall that sin has erected. Jesus is the, is the one who breaks down the walls. And you can't break down the walls by yourself between you and other people without Jesus helping you to sacrifice pride and impatient and destructive words and unrestrained anger. He is the one who helps us to do that very thing. Are you trusting him to help you do that? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have bridged the gap that exists between us and God. Thank you for being willing to voluntarily give up your life to pay a penalty for our brokenness and our sin that you did not deserve in order that we could get what we don't deserve, and that is forgiveness the presence of God, ongoing grace, mercy, peace, joy, love. And my prayer is this day, God, for any individual who does not yet know Christ by faith, they have not stepped across the line of faith and said, I do not have this peace. I do not know God in a personal way that today they would do that. They would simply admit their need. They would believe that Christ is the bridge. They would call upon you, and they would enter into life with you. 
And then, God, I pray especially for those of us who are followers of Jesus, who have had the wall broken down, who have walked across the bridge of Christ to life with you. Would you forgive us for the times that our anger has been unrestrained? And we have said and we have done things that have not been honoring to you. Would you forgive us for destructive words? Words that we didn't slow down and consider. Words we just allowed to fly from a heart that needs to be more fully surrendered because you tell us, Jesus, it's from the overflow of the heart that our mouths speak. So would you do some heart surgery on some of us? Would you forgive us for not exhibiting and giving patience to people who differ from us, who believe different from us, who act different from us? Forgive us for not giving them the kind of patience you give us every single day. And forgive us, God, of our pride that disrespects and is not gentle. Remind us, Lord, that pride goes before the fall. We thank you, God, that you're not asking us to give up our core beliefs and our core convictions, but you're asking us to adopt a different tone and a different tenor in how we live them and how we express them. And I pray, God, that uh, we will be a fragrant aroma in a culture that has so much hatred that when people hear us and they see us with the convictions that we have, demonstrating them in the spirit of Jesus, that they would be drawn to Christ and they would be drawn to consider the claims of Christ and the biblical truths. We know that we can do that with your help and we're praying that it will be so among this church that we will know now how we should live. And I pray this in the name of Jesus and together we said amen, amen. Wow, what an incredible message. We are so glad that you joined us and we hope and pray that you were so blessed by our time together. And listen, we wanna to get to know you better. So would you consider going to pleasantvalley.org slash connect so we can learn more about you. Again, we are so glad that you joined us today and we hope that you remember you are welcome here and God so loves you.